0: This evening we are recording number two of a series of studies conducted at the chapel of the Open Book under the title of the Roma. Those who are listening to this recording may care to read with us the passage, Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. If you will just switch off for a while while we read this together, we can then go on together in the remainder of our study. Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. In our opening study of this subject entitled the Pre-Roma," we paid attention to the way in which our Saviour introduced this wonderful word in a most lowly context. You will remember in both Matthew, Mark and Luke, he uses a figure of a rent garment and the piece being put in to restore it and repair it, and then drew attention that if they did not agree, if the one was not fooled, there would be a rent made far worse than at the beginning. We also realised that there was a certain wonder about the use of such a simple illustration for such a mighty subject. From our point of view, the pre-Roma covers the whole purpose of the ages and spreads from Genesis 1 verse 1 to the last chapter of the book of the Revelation in order to get all within it that God has said. And yet, and yet, from God's point of view, He just likens it to a rent in a garment and a patch put in to make it whole. So it keeps us in our place. Wonderful as it may be, God is even more wonderful. And on this chart, I've not been able to put the real beginning or the real end of this story. As you look at this chart, it begins with creation, doesn't it? And it ends with creation. But how wrong I am. It begins with God. And it ends with God. In the beginning, God? Never mind what he did. He must have been there before he did anything. And you know, there are a good many people have never faced, never thought. I wonder where God was before there was heaven and earth. Now that's a silly question, isn't it? Because you can't imagine. Well, where is there that's neither heaven nor earth? I don't know, friends. But if in, in the beginning God created both heaven and earth, he's before them all, isn't he? And beyond our ability to comprehend. So in the beginning... God. And 1 Corinthians 15, then cometh the end that God, there it is again, may be all in all. So, from our point of view, a vast succession of ages, nations rising and falling, the coming that last at fullness of time into this world, the Son of God, and the wondrous work of salvation, the present session of our Saviour at the right hand, the second coming which is yet to take place, the millennial kingdom, the period after it, the ushering in of the last, when God shall be all in all, all that. Just working from God and working back to God. Of course, that's oversimplifying, isn't it? But you see, we can in a measure visualize the purpose if we reduce it down to those elements. We can put it this way that in the beginning, God was all. And at the end, he'll be all in all. That's a different proposition. God was all alone at the beginning. God will be all in all to his redeemed family at the end. Am I saying things outside the record? I'm only saying what God says. Almost the last page of the book says, The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. Dwell with them. You don't imagine, you don't think of God who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who dwells in a high and holy place, wanting anywhere to dwell except that. But it says so. It immediately follows those terrific words and says, with him also, that is a humble and a contrite spirit. So you see, there's a moral and a spiritual end which is far vaster, far more wonderful than the mechanical and physical beginning of a creation. Well now this evening, I think we shall spend most of our time considering the implications of the first verse of the book of Genesis. Now don't say, oh dear, we know that. We could all quote it, I dare say. And we have some idea of its implications. But it's lying there waiting for us, And we've got to give it a consideration this evening so that we may be sure of its wording and some of the things that will arise out of it. Let us read just the first verse as it stands in our Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Most of you know that in the original, the words are just seven. Just seven words. And those words are composed of 14 syllables. And those 14 syllables are composed of 28 letters. And the stamp of number 7 is marked on the outstanding words God created and heaven and earth and so on. But I haven't got chapter and verse for that, so I won't go further. But I do know that some of these outstanding words are very much marked by the number seven also. Now, this can either be an accident, or it can be a part of a design. Let us be quite prepared sometimes with these numerics to be willing to concede that if there are a group of numbers, they must add up to something, whatever you do with them. So, by accident, a word that means nothing at all much will be multiple of seven. I've never added up my name, I don't know what it comes to, but it's possible it might come to 666, but it wouldn't trouble me, because that's just accident. I know that if you take Winston, Winston, Spencer, Cabinet, and all those words that revolve around Churchill are all sevens, but it doesn't mean anything, just accident. I'm saying that. But you see, if after the emphasis upon seven in verse 1, it succeeded by seven days in which that ruined creation is restored. Well, th- that may be an accident too. Uh, but the two of them coming together makes a little bit more like a, a sort of purpose, doesn't it? And then when you go further and find it goes right through the book, until when you get to the book of the Revelation, it's a job to read any few verses without reading number seven. Seven spirits, seven churches, seven they or so, it goes on. And at long last you begin to realise there's a purpose why this first verse should have that stamp upon it. This comes from the hand of God. And I suppose we would all have to agree that that which comes direct from the hand of God like that would be perfect. Would you say, why go further? Why do any more? Well, it was perfect within its own kingdom. Uh, But the most perfect say, television, or the most perfect machine. It's hardly a companion for life, is it? I mean, there's something more, isn't there, than mere physical or mechanical perfection. That's the basis in the beginning. But then there comes the angelic, there comes the human, then there comes the spiritually quickened, the various companies who form the whole family of faith. And we cannot get away from the fact that from the very beginning, God was planning that one day he would be indeed and in truth the Father and every family in heaven and earth all united under him by grace. Well, that's an encouraging thought, isn't it? It's so much more wonderful, so much more near to the heart than thinking of a mechanical universe where everything was squares and triangles and hexagons to a spiritual universe. And not only a spiritual universe, but a very homely, very friendly, very lovely universe. That the essence of it is a family. And the glorious title of God is not the Almighty, but a Father. So we take courage. And we say, if we belong to such a purpose, well, let's see to it that we understand the calling and then by the grace of God see to manifest it a little more than we have done in the past. There's always plenty of room on top, they say. So don't take uh, that as though I'm lecturing you, I'm lecturing myself as well. Now what about this, the, the word in the beginning? In the beginning of what? Oh, there was no calendars published in those days, friends. And there was no dates. You couldn't say it was January, February, March or April, could you? You couldn't say it was the first, second, or third. You're right there at the beginning. With God only. In the beginning. Well, we'll have to look at this a little bit more closely. First of all, I'll tell you the word. The word is berosheth. It's made up of two parts, but it stands as one word. The B, the letter B in the Hebrew language is equivalent to the preposition in. And then the berosheth is the word translated beginning but we shall notice in chapter 315 that this word which gives us the word beginning is there translated by the word head I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head keep that in mind when you think of the word beginning because it's not merely the beginning in time it's the beginning in, one, what can I say? Dignity, cause, origin, many things. The head, as well as the word beginning. Then you might also be interested to know that in the Septuagint version of the book of Genesis, this in the beginning is represented by the words enarchy. And there's nobody who's even made an attempt to begin to learn Greek but what knows, I suppose, the first verse of John's Gospel, en archi in logos, in the beginning was the Word. Well, now you see. However far this goes back, and it goes back so far that none of us could even attempt to visualise it, in the beginning, he was there. So he was there before creation. He was there in the beginning anarchy in the beginning. It's the most definite lifting up of the word of Genesis and putting it again in our Genesis, the Genesis of spiritual creation and newness of life. Well now, the next thing is, there is actually no Article V, not in the beginning. Although I wouldn't stress this unduly, but I would ask you to notice it, because Uh, For instance, I'll give you one illustration of the way in which the ordinary expression we mean the beginning of anything, I don't bother to turn to it, I'm just reading from Jeremiah 26, 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. That's exactly the same expression as here. But, that doesn't exhaust its meaning. It has something very much more. I'm going to read again another portion of Jeremiah, this time chapter 2 and 3, verse 3, where we've got exactly the same word. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits. That's a word that starts Genesis, first fruits. We're going to see a little bit further presently, but let's think again of the word Archie. Archie. That's in the beginning of John's Gospel. You say the beginning of time again. But this very word, Archie is the word we are so familiar with in the epistle to the Ephesians. Principality. Now that's not the beginning of time, not a, not a principality. It's a first, oh yes, but not merely in time, but in position, in relation to all that follows. Don't you see there's more in this word beginning than at first appears on the surface? Isn't it worth a moment or two of digging into it just to make sure we've got the right end of the story? Now, again, let's put it this way. If it's a first fruits, well, the teaching of the scriptures concerning the first fruits is that it was always a pledge and an anticipation of something coming in the future. The feast of the first fruits, The very thing that they did, somebody uh, sent by the officials of the temple or the tabernacle, they went through a field, and they picked one or two ears of corn that were a little bit in advance of the rest. And they were offered to the Lord as a first fruits, a pledge that the harvest was yet to come. Pentecost is a first fruits. The kingdom wasn't set up in Acts 2, but it was a pledge that it was going to be, what took place at Acts 2 was a first fruit of what is yet to take place of the harvest of the end of the age. So we've got both words now. Berosheth and anarchy supplying us not only with a word a beginning or a commencement in time, but a beginning or a commencement that was a pledge that something else was coming. Friends, that's getting nearer the truth. God started creation at the beginning because he had something in view that he was aiming at. And creation, with all its wonder, is only a step in the direction. Of course, we couldn't speak about it like that from our angle. Scientists are still revealing the wonders of creation. Whether they call it creation or not, or whether they believe a creator or not, every day they're discovering The wonders of this creation. But isn't it even more wonderful to think that a creation that can be so vast and so far-reaching should nevertheless be in the mind of God only a means to an end. And it's destined to pass away and a new one take its place when the time comes. Now I think the next thing we must do is to leave Genesis One, leave the book of Genesis and travel down the ages till we get to the book of the Revelation. Just like we do sometimes or used to do when we had a book, Uh, we'd just turn up the last page and see whether they really did live happy ever afterwards. Of course nowadays, any book that ended happy ever afterwards wouldn't be worth a reading. But here's a book that conforms to that pattern. After all the blood and suffering and sorrow, no more curse, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. Former things are passed away. Behold, I make all things new. But what's it going to do with the word beginning? Well, we're just going to look and see at the way in which this word occurs in this book of the Revelation. Chapter 1 verse 18 Uh, Verse 8 I'm sorry I'm giving you the wrong although by accident verse 18 is picking up the same story I will read 18 now I am he that liveth and was dead And behold, I'm alive forevermore, because you remember in the epistle to the Colossians, Christ is the beginning, the first born from the dead. Beginning. Well, here we have in Revelation 1.8, his title. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Look at a crowd of titles there. Christ is here spoken of as the Almighty. That is the very self same word we get presently translated: the Lord God Omnipotent Reigneth. Omnipotent is this word Almighty, and He's the only one who reigns. He's the King. He is said to be Alpha and Omega, and most of us know that's the first and last letter in the Greek Alpha Bet. It's the long O, Omega. There's a short O, Omicron. O Micron, Microscopic, O, little O. Omega, Megaphone, a loud voice, large O. But they're vowels, these two. And one of the peculiar characteristics of the Hebrew language is that originally it was written without vowels. B-double-L would either be a bell that you ring or a ball that you ring. But you ring the ball differently than you ring a bell, but you you know by the context. Then when Hebrew became more or less a language for scholars and ceased to be the spoken language of the people, they invented a whole series of little dots very much like Pittman's shorthand and they took the place of the vowels that everybody knew because it was a spoken language. But you can quite understand this, can't you? That even those who put the vowel points in sometimes might have made a little mistake. They may have perpetuated a tradition and not the truth. There are some words that you have to look at and uh, you're not quite sure. Do you see what Christ comes along and does? He puts the vowels in. Christ is the answer to your problems, even of translation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. But not only so, he's the beginning. Not merely was he in the beginning, this takes it a stage further. This says he is the beginning. Oh, but then you say you're not going to tell me that it means that he was Well, let's look at chapter three fourteen instead of arguing, shall we? Chapter three fourteen. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right. These things at the Amen is another title. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. That's not time at all now. This is a person. How we're going to see that when we look at Genesis 1 verse 1 may be a problem. In the beginning, in a person who was Alpha and Omega beginning and ending God created heaven and earth. Maybe something that we hesitate to accept. But it, you begin to see it's infinitely far more than merely a line drawn on a calendar. Christ is the beginning of the creation of God. Whatever, whatever the word beginning may finally mean, Christ is the beginning. Let's take it a stage further. Chapter 21, 6. And I'm giving you every reference to the word beginning in the book of the Revelation, friends. He said unto me, it is done. This is very, very much like another time when our Saviour said, it is finished. It is finished had to do with redemption. It is done had to do with its results, new creation. It is done. I make all things new. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Here it is again, beginning. And the last occurrence of the word beginning in the book of the Revelation is chapter 22, verse 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. There must be some real reason why that repeats like that even if we cannot fully understand it. Let's acknowledge it. That this puts a little different light upon Genesis 1. Christ, the beginning. Now will you turn to Colossians chapter 1, where we have something parallel. Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Christ, verse 15, who is the image of, Of the invisible God. One of the great characteristics of God as God is that he is invisible. Invisible. Belongs to a realm of which we know nothing. And it looks as though at the very beginning, before ever a man was here, for the purposes of creation, as ultimately for the purposes of redemption, he stepped out of his legitimate sphere, the invisible, the intangible, the inaudible, the unshackled, the unconditioned, the free, and he limited himself. Don't you see that God limited himself when he created heaven and earth? God immediately took upon himself a responsibility. Not only to bring it into existence, but to keep it going. So we have Christ. The only God we should ever see. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of every creature. Now that left to itself could mean that he was the first creature that was ever made. But the reason why it's put there is For, he's called the firstborn of every creature, for by him all things were created. And if you're not sure about yourself even now, look at the next occurrence of the word firstborn, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now you would never say that Christ had no existence before he was raised from the dead because that would be simply silly, because he couldn't have been raised from the dead if he wasn't there beforehand. So this is a title of dignity. In the old creation, he was the firstborn of all creation. In the new creation, he's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, ancient and modern, he may have the preeminence. We're getting it again. Preeminence. That's the word beginning. That's the word principality. That's the word first fruits. All these things crowding in. Am I wrong in saying that Christ, raised from the dead, was the first fruits of them that sleep? That's what Scripture says. Because he lives, we should live also. But coming back again. Our version says in verse sixteen, By him were all things created. And yet it goes on to say Um that in all things, he might have the preeminence. Now the same preposition is translated by and preposition is translated in. And there are some who hesitate because they think that to say that in him all things were created may lead us a bit astray somewhere. But we can't be led astray if we let God lead us. In the beginning God created. Christ is the beginning of creation, and in him all things were created. In verse 17, we have a little uh, change, showing that the apostle used his prepositions with discretion. And he is before all things, and by him, now that's not the same as the word by him in verse 16. We might think so. But verse 16 says in, and verse 17 says dire through, through him. Well now, here comes a bit where it makes you pause. You say, now if we if we once accept what you're trying to tell us, that in Christ the old creation found its place, and that old creation went wrong. Well, what guarantee have we that the next creation, the new creation, being in Him, aren't we always stressing? that it's in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, and we're saying that's the guarantee that it will never be defective. Well, have I upset my own argument then? I thought I had at first, and then I said, no, I see it, I see it. Will you notice that presently, after speaking about this marvellous position of being the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, all things being held together by him, and he having the preeminence, it says in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. Who is this one? Who in a few verses can have ascribed to him the creation, not merely of the universe that we see, Well that's majestic enough friends for you to believe that the Son of God is the creator of the very land you walk on is enough to satisfy you with regard to his position. But this says by him were all things created visible and invisible. Thrones, principalities, powers all things created by him and for him. That's another bit to throw in. Not merely by him but for him. Fancy, this vast universe created for him. And then in the very next few verses, he's got a body of flesh, and he dies. He came into this world to take a body in order that he may die. Because you get that crude objection: If Christ is God, can God die? Say, isn't that the very reason why God was manifest in the flesh, took upon himself the human nature in order that he might die? Isn't that so? So we have it now then. Do I not find the same sequel of statements, sequence of statements, in another passage? We read Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, didn't we? Well, in chapter 1, who is the creator? In chapter 1. Thou Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy fingers. They shall perish, but thou remainest. That's the Son of God. That's the one we call Saviour. When I come to the next chapter, it didn't create it. He's made a little lower than the angels as a stoop. But he went further than that. Not only was he made a little lower than the angels but seeing that children were partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, here it is, through death, he might destroy him, that had the power of death, that is the devil. So Colossians 1 says, the creator took upon himself a body, and reconciled you, and brought you back. Hebrews says, the creator <coughs> took upon himself a body, exactly like the children that he came to redeem to destroy the works of the devil. And then, John the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Inherent life belongs to God only. Every other creature is dependent life. As far as we know, no arch- archangel in glory can turn around to God and say, I'm independent of you. You and I are dependent. I sometimes wish we weren't. Here am I stuffing myself up with magnesium, I don't know what, because I must eat. I wish I didn't have to. I'm dependent but this one of whom I'm speaking, in him was life. Then presently in the same gospel, chapter 5, it says God has granted that his son should have life in himself. Now well, you see, do we not read in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself? For the purposes of our redemption, he laid aside all that. He became dependent. I only speak, I only do, what I see the Father do. And then he, as the saviour, the mediator, has life in himself. That's the, that's the prerogative of God, to have life in himself. But now it's for you and for me. So he was made, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, made higher than the angels. But he was higher than the angels beforehand, for he created them. Oh yes, but not as the mediator. Not as the redeemer. He became a little lower than the angels although he was vastly above them because he was man and stooped for our salvation. So John goes on after speaking about him as the one who made all things. says, And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacled. Just a brief stay here. Didn't intend to stay here long. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. That sort of glory that you would associate with a son who had a father like that. Now, I'm giving a paraphrase because the wording of God's Gospel is such that it makes you stop and say, and behold his glory, that sort of glory that you would associate with that sort of son, of that sort of father. It's the glory of the son. So, in three places, we have an old creation, the work of his hands, in him and made by him, that went wrong. But then we have the one thing that's going to guarantee that the next creation will not go wrong, because it doesn't stand in the strength of creation, it stands in all the majesty of redemption. Now so you and I belong to a new creation already. The new heavens and the new earth are not here. And in a month's time when you're wishing your friends a happy new year, it won't be, friends, it won't be. It'll be another old year, the same as all the rest and perhaps worse. For when God says I make all things new he always adds this bit to it and the former things are passed away. No more this. No more that. No more the other. That's new in, when God says new. So now you see this first creation in Genesis 1 is already anticipating a better creation at the end. Not that we are casting any doubt upon the perfection of the creation that God made. But he made it on purpose to set it aside. When I saw the scaffolding against the sunset sky, against Big Ben, or the Great Tower and Parliament, even the scaffolding looked a fantastic piece of architecture. The marvel of it sticking up there. And the marvel of a man getting up there and putting it there. But however wonderful a piece of scaffolding may be, however much it may be a piece of engineering, and it needs a qualified group of men to be able to do it, I don't suppose anybody in their senses would say, oh, let's have a whole town of scaffolding. It looks so interesting. Now, all the things that are written in the scriptures are just scaffoldings. Types, shadows, tabernacles, Passover, feasts, fasts, laws, prophecies, all, they're all there, but their work's going to be done. And when their work is done, they're going to be taken away. Now, I haven't gone very far with regard to speaking about this chart yet. Well, here's an opportunity now just to give you uh, the next stage in relation to the idea that I'm speaking about. That this present world is so constructed that is going to pass away. You will notice that the two outside pieces have got, they're supposed to be gold, but of course gold's a bit rare just now, and so I've had a makeshift. The two outside ones go right up to the very top, right down the other side, because that is the original heavens in the beginning. We should have to come to Genesis 1 again presently and see that there was a limited heaven within this present creation. That is the, t- the tent above. Now the scripture says that when the purpose of the ages is reached that is going to pass away, be folded up and put aside. That's what you do with a tent when you get home, back it up. But now, let's come back again, because we haven't finished with Genesis 1 yet, to the other word which is so important, and that is the word create. Once more, the philosophic use of the word, or the metaphysical use of the word, to create something out of nothing, is never ventilated in Scripture. It does not say in Genesis in the beginning, God created the basic matter of the universe. I don't know what the basic matter of the universe could be. Really? I don't mind confessing my ignorance there, friends, because I don't think you do either. But I have a feeling that there is a good deal to justify the thought that if you could get right down to the bottom of material, you would find it was just a bundle of force. Tied up by God. Not stuff. But at the very bottom of it, it's just force. And if we could have a crude illustration, he puts, say, five little pieces of force together in a hexagon shape, and that's always iron. And six pieces of force in a circle, that's always copper. But it's all force. And so you get the very first thing that's mentioned when God was wrecked preparing earth for man again, is light. And light is the basis of a tremendous amount of energy and creative power to this day. You know the word photosynthesis? I don't know whether you do, Uh, but evidently when I went to school in the... Oh, how hard does that go back? When I was 13 years of age, that would be in 1893, I knew what photosynthesis was by being taught so in a school right down in the depths of South East London. Well, if you haven't had such a good education as I had then, I'll just tell you. Take a green leaf and think of the miracle. Look at that green leaf for a moment and then say to yourself, my whole existence in this life depends upon the chemical uh, work that's being done in that green leaf and I don't know what it's doing yet. That green leaf contains chlorophyll and if you feel you're getting old the chemist will sell you it over the counter at a rather fabulous price to give you energy. See, But you can have plenty of it in ordinary cabbage leaves which cost very much less. Chlorophyll. Now that chlorophyll has the power when sunlight is acting upon it to take out of the air carbon, which is in the air, carbon dioxide, and turn it into sugar. Then it goes down the stem of the plant, liquid, easily, soluble, and when it gets into the plant, in many cases, it turns into starch. You see, take potatoes, for instance. If God hadn't done it that way, what a mess you'd have in your store when you went to see your potatoes, wouldn't you? If it was all sugar. The sugar's there right enough, but it's turned into starch and remains solid. Then you put it in your mouth, and if you keep a piece of starch in your mouth long enough, you find it tastes sweet. It's going, changing. Now, photosynthesis is the power that the plant has to build up that basic thing that we need for our life by sunshine. All the creative power of life. Well now, what is this word create? It doesn't mean creating the substance. It means the substance is already there. How it got there, none of us know. But this word create comes from a word which means to cut, to fashion, to carve as a jewel. In the first case, If we look at this word bara, which is the word create, this word, it occurs in the whole of the Old Testament only five times is it used in connection with man. And then, not in the sense of creating as we understand it, it's used of cutting down trees. Hence the word create. Used of cutting down trees. But you see, that's the basic meaning of the word to fashion, to cut, to shape, so it can go that direction. But this word occurs 49 times, 7 times 7, in the Old Testament, as the action of God. So we've got that little thing to guide us. To show you that the word create doesn't necessarily mean creating the stuff God says concerning, say, um, chapter 2. He created um, things to grow out of the dust, but the dust was there. He says in Isaiah 43 that he had created Israel as a nation, but Israel was there to be created into a nation. So again, this is dealing with something a little different from just bringing something out of nothing. That is never ventilated. You might also be interested to know that the word bara gives us the word bar, B-A-R, which is one of the words for son, like Bartimius, Bartholomew. So that's another idea of creation. Sonship. A father and a son, as well as a creator and a created thing. Now in the new, in the Greek version, this idea is resident in the word cosmos, which is the word for the world. Now of course you can take passages from the scriptures which tell you that the word world is a thing that is hateful, it's abandoned, you must come out from it, have nothing to do with it. But on the other hand, the world was made by him then we've got two points of view. It's as it came from his hand and as it was spoiled by sin. Two different points. How did it come from his hand? It's a cosmos. Now, do you know that word, when it becomes a verb, is to adorn in the New Testament? It's the word that gives us goodly stones. It's the word that's translated garnish. All the words mean something lovely. So we've got to be careful when we Speak about this world. When we think about the world that's stained with sin and under the dominion of the wicked one, yes, it's a terrible place. But all think how it's fallen. Like the words are about Lucifer. How art thou fallen, thou son of the morning? What this world might have been had it not for the enemy and the introduction of sin and death. So we have this word, and I'll give you one or two passages to give you these meanings. Luke 21, verse 5. Luke 21, verse 5. <laughs> and as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. You've got the word adorned, you've got the word goodly stones. Here we have the word which gives us the word cosmos or world. World. Yeah. Again, in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Adorn. And Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And by the time you get to verse 19 you begin to realize that the heavenly city which comes down at last is only a tiny little miniature of some of the beauty that was originally in the mind of God when he carved Fashioned as a jewel, the creation at the beginning. Verse nineteen: and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. So now we've got a little glimpse of what it was in the beginning. We haven't looked in these meetings yet of what it became, but we've gone to the other end and see. The emerging again. And at long last, the goal reached. A new heavens and a new earth. The black bands on this chart represent laxes. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then the earth became without form and void. There it is. It goes right down, it goes right across, it goes up the other side. That piece up the other side is 2 Peter chapter 3. Where again... Without form and void could be the word used of the dissolution of heaven and earth all passing away. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth, says Peter. So we've got the beginning and the end. And then we have the creation, as we understand it, of man. And behold, it was very good. Then there's a lapse again man sins and ruin comes in. But we go across to the other side and behold, don't say it's very good, behold, I make all things new. That's the answer. Then after that, that's we get once more. Paradise. But paradise lost. Then we go to the other side. Paradise restored. We get another black piece and Genesis 6 replenish the earth. But as it was in the days of Noah, so should it be at the end. And then we get, again, another intervention on the part of God. The call of Abraham and the fullness of Israel. And then Israel acknowledging in Revelation 1 that there'll be a kingdom of priests, not under the old covenant, but under the new. And then we get to where the Gentile comes in in Daniel and the Gentile dominating Jerusalem in chapter 21 to the time of the end. And we get to our own position, Acts 28, and the mystery right in the beginning, right in the middle. The only company of the redeemed that pierce the limited firmament are right up where Christ sits at the right hand of God. So there have been lapses, and then God putting a filling. They're not fullnesses. Oh no, they're only fillings. Stop that until he comes, who is the fullness himself. All these others, types and shadows. Types and shadows are valuable because they do point the way. But we don't tally there. We don't stop there. We go on until we find them all in Christ. Well, that's as far as we go this evening, friends, with this analysis. I hope that the time we've surveyed these scriptures under this heading, that they will live to you. You'll begin to feel, oh, what a purpose that is. What a gracious thought to think that I'm in it and then all give me grace to walk worthy of it and adorn this doctrine of God my Saviour in all things.